Real fast. What did you just hear? Take some guesses. I'll give you like five seconds. Okay. If you guessed hearing the sounds of the river, sirens, vehicles, birds, and coyotes, then you got it right. This audio was also recorded by Mary Harner. She was on the bank of the Rio Grande, north of Central Avenue Bridge. Hello, my name is Renee Simonson and welcome to my podcast, episode 2 of 3. This series was recorded in the spring of 2022. The focus of this episode will be on challenges related to water sustainability. Before I begin, I just want to say that sometimes I ask everyone a question and the answers I receive are similar, so I won't include all of them. Okay, let me give some background for the questions. This podcast is to help with communications between super science people and people with not as much science in the background, so this is why my questions are not as technical. I'm pretty sure everybody has heard about different ecological issues over the years, but have not really seen the impacts for themselves. Because of this, people might think that the whole thing is exaggerated or a scam. So, why should we take these issues seriously? Maybe you'll see why as everybody answers my questions. My first question about water sustainability was, why is it important for people to care about water demand increasing and water usability decreasing? Let's hear Brennan Davis's answer. I mean, water potable water that we can drink um, at least is uh, in its current form a finite resource you know there's we can recycle it and clean it to a degree but only so much Um, and you know our groundwater is is very very slow to recharge Uh, our surface water that we rely on for drinking um, for irrigation stuff like that uh, that's dependent on rain that's dependent on snowpack Um, So that's all to say that there's a lot of variability um, when it comes to predicting like what our water supplies are going to look like. Um, But overall, yeah, the trend is not looking great in terms of supply. Um, Especially in New Mexico. Right, yeah. It's like particularly uh, tricky here, I'll say that. Um, And so, yeah, when you start to have more people um, increasing demand and... I mean, in the past several years, Albuquerque has decreased demand per capita, which is cool. Like, everybody's using less, but, like, overall, we're still using a lot of water, right? Of course, yeah. So, it's like, the drops in the bucket count, um, but I think, really, people need to understand the, the totality of the situation. I like his answer. It makes sense, and I also noticed he said water demand was decreasing in Albuquerque, which is great. But I did not think this decrease in demand was that big until I asked John Fleck the same question. Here's what he said. Well, so, so, so let me reframe the question a little bit. Um, because it's really important as a first step to understand that water demand is actually going down. Is it? Water demand is going down. So if you look at the cities around the West, which is what I study, yeah. um, water use is declining almost everywhere. People are getting, people have already gotten very, very good at conservation. Whoa. They're tearing out lawns, they're putting in low flow um, plumbing, you know, low flow toilets and shower heads and faucets. Um, and so if you look at the major cities in the West, almost all of them, water use is actually going down. Mm-hmm. 
even though population is going up. Yeah, I was just going to ask about yeah. that. Like, people just keep like having kids and right, you know. right, right. But 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 we've gotten so good at water conservation that we're conserving faster than population is rising in most cities. Not all of them, but but everywhere we're doing really good at conservation. In the places we're not doing super good, we can do better, and they're getting better at it. And that's the sim you know, it's the simple problem. There's just less water. You can't use water you don't have, so cities are adapting. Municipalities, communities are adapting really well in the cities. Um, the problem is twofold. First of all, climate change is eating into our water supply faster than our conservation efforts can keep up with. Oh, okay. So it's bad. Yeah. The situation is very, very bad. And the other thing is that the majority of the water goes to irrigate cropland. Um, you know, like maybe 80% of our, the water that humans take out of these rivers in, on the Rio Grande and the Colorado, these big western rivers, is going to irrigate cropland. Um, and there's just no way around that problem. With climate change dramatically reducing the flows of the rivers, there's going to be less land irrigated. There just is. Um, and the cities are going to be able to adapt, and cities could be... Um, much more efficient and will be when they have to be. Mm -hmm. And it'll mean different cities. You won't be able to have as much green space around your home in a city anymore. Yeah. Um, that's the only way to, to solve this problem is have less green space because really most of the water, our indoor water use, we can clean it up and reuse it. Mostly we put it back in rivers here in the west and someone downstream can use our, our treated wastewater. Wow. So you're saying that um, you just need to have less like green, did you say? Less green, yeah. yeah. That's the bottom line. And cities will have less green. And farms will be less green. There will be less irrigated agriculture. And the hard part of this is that you have these communities where their whole, their central being is around agriculture and irrigated That's agriculture. Yeah. That's how they make their money, but it's also the way of life. It's like a culture and a community. It's, what, it's their identity. And I spent a bunch of time um, over the last 10 years in, in these communities in the deserts in southern Arizona and, and southeastern California, places like the Imperial Valley, places like El Centro and Brawley and Blythe and Yuma. And they're towns that were built around the idea of irrigating land to grow crops. Mm. And I love these communities and I'm really sad trying to think about what can we do to help them sort of retain their basic community identities mm. while their ability to farm shrinks. And I think we can do it, but it's a hard problem. I wonder if you can hear that his answers shocked me. So apparently, water use is not exactly the problem. It's climate change. Which is perfect because my next question has to do with climate change. We know that the Earth has been getting warmer over the years. How is this affecting the availability of water? Molly Hantula answers this question first, then Wes no. Immensely. 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 Um, so it can affect, obviously, how much water we have. So the way that uh, snowpack um, melts during mm -hmm. spring runoff, yeah, you get this huge surge of water, traditionally speaking. Mm -hmm. Well, when you have um, shorter winters, they may, might, might be stronger uh, storm systems but you have shorter winters, and mm -hmm. then what happens is it actually gets so hot so quick that yeah. you kind of get reflection versus refraction 
in the snow and so it actually evaporates before it can melt into the system. Oh wow. So you get less of a spring runoff. Uh -huh. um, it can obviously have an effect on reservoirs mm -hmm. um, and lakes because of evaporation. Yeah. Um, it has an effect on water quality also. Um, I mean, it's just, it, it affects every aspect. The population is increasing, but there's the efforts of water sustainability and that's actually decoupling the uh, per capita growth and John Fleck might have talked about this. Yeah, yeah. And so that's a really, really interesting uh, phenomenon that's been happening. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we are still seeing these dwindling water supplies and it's great that the, the metro areas are practicing the sustainability of water practices, but at the same time, um, it's not just an issue in the Al Albuquerque metro area, it's climate change is affecting the whole entire Rio Grande watershed mm -hmm. and up in the San Juan Mountains where the headwaters are, um, they're seeing a dwindling snowpack, which thus means uh, less water for us and less water for the ecosystem. And at my specific study spot, we've already seen a little bit of those consequences because um, in September, sometime between July um, and September, those are when I, I visited it. I didn't visit the Oxbow in August, but sometime during those months mm -hmm. of 2021, the Oxbow actually went dry. So oh, no. um, in these wetland areas, of course, the Rio Grande doesn't typically flood, but in these wetland areas, we are seeing the consequences of a dwindling water supply um, from as the wetlands are getting drier. Oh, okay. So is the wetlands you're visiting, is it dry usually? I mean, I should say wet usually all all year? Yeah, from what I've seen and experienced and talked to, uh, people have seen it wet year round. Mm -hmm. um, however, back in the 1970s, it did go dry, but that was because of the Middle Rio Grande Conservancy District, which is in charge of irrigation in um, the Middle Rio Grande area. Mm -hmm. They actually diverted the lower Corrales Riverside drain, which feeds the Oxbow to the river and uh, there was a lot of community effort to re-divert it back to the Oxbow. So it sounds like climate change is really doing a number on how we get our water supply. This I definitely do see with my extended family's farming. They talk about droughts and how much water they can use. It's just interesting how things are connecting for me. The third question I asked was what were some real problems they saw that was a result of water shortages? The people who will be tackling this question are Becky Bixby, Mary Harner, and John Fleck. So the Rio Grande since the 50s has really been managed for various stakeholders, agriculture and municipal water and in-stream, in-channel needs. One of the things that has happened through this management and also decreasing water supply is that the in-channel connections to the Bosque, um, the, the forested areas alongside the river, they're no longer connected as often as they used to be. We used to have really big spring floods with snow melt um, that would flood the Bosque and bring all the, the nutrients that are uh, the carbon in the in the Bosque back into the river. And because we have this really channelized river now, we don't have this overbanking that um, 
historically occurred in the river. So that's one of the things that's um, that has happened with a combination of climate change and also management strategies in the Rio Grande. So an example that I can think of is it's tied to water shortages, but it's more tied to water management. And one of the things mm -hmm. that people have done is, and, and Becky alluded to this, is change uh, the timing of river flows and especially the flood flows. And so we've done this because floods can be devastating and unpredictable and it's hard to live near a river if it's having a flash flood. And, and in an effort to protect livelihoods and to control the timing of when water is available for irrigation and other human uses, most rivers have been what we call regulated, where there have been levees and dams and diversions and, and large projects built along them. And firsthand, we see effects of that on the ecosystems. Like most of the riverine ecosystems are adapted to high river flows and floods and then the other side of that periods of lower flows and even in some rivers periods of no flows and everything in between and that whole mixture of of what's called a, a natural flow regime and most places don't have that and so one of the things that i've been able to see firsthand are some rivers that still have those natural flow regimes and connections so in new mexico the gila river in southwestern new mexico is an example of a river that still has most of its natural flows. It's, it's impacted and changed some by people, but it still carries a lot of its high flows and the low flows and every, everything in between. And so um, an example of what happens when the rivers don't flood anymore is that the energy of those scouring floods and the, the movement of the channel and the deposition of sediment that so many parts of the system rely upon, um, such as cottonwood trees uh, that need the spare ground and moist soil really early on in their life cycle to be able to establish, to, be, to have any hope of growing into a mature plant. A lot of these species don't have what they need and they're replaced by different species and often species that aren't native to that ecosystem like uh, on the Rio Grande, uh, there's more and more salt cedar and Russian olive. Um, and some other organisms use those plants, but they're very different than the native cottonwood trees. And so you have these shifts of what plant species grow there, and then in turn, what habitats available for all the other organisms that use those plants, as an example. Yeah, so, so I, was just, um, I was just up in Utah at a meeting last week, um, and um, we were talking about the big reservoirs on the Colorado River, Lake Powell, which is on the Utah, um, um, Arizona border. You're probably familiar with Powell and then Lake Mead down by Las Vegas. And the reservoirs are at record lows. Both of those reservoirs are the lowest that they've been since they started filling them when they first built them, the 1930s for Mead and the 60s for Powell, which means that the communities that depend on those reservoirs for their water supply mm -hmm. face risks of cutbacks soon. And they could be dramatic, and that's places like Las Vegas, Phoenix, Los Angeles, Denver, Albuquerque. Um, there's going to be less of that kind of water coming out of the big reservoirs. But there are also lots of little communities, and I drove 
um, on the way back, I went through um, Dolores County, which is in the southwestern corner of um, um, Colorado. Mm -hmm. It's it's Dolores, the, the Dolores Valley on the Dolores River was the home of the um, ancestral Puebloan people in that valley. And you know, when drought conditions became bad 800 years ago, 700, 900 years ago, those people left and they moved up to Mesa Verde. And the community, the, 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 the place that we today call Mesa Verde, the cliff dwellings, the ancestral Puebloan people who lived there, moved to that place as a result of a change in climate then. So climate has always changed. Yeah. Today, there's a, there are farming communities in the Dolores Valley that depend on water from the Dolores River and a dam called McPhee Dam, and there's almost no water in McPhee Dam, and they're gonna get maybe 10% of the, of the water that, that they might get if the dam was full, if the river was flowing well, to grow beans. And there's this, you know, hard scrabble economy, rural economy in places like Dove Creek and, and um, Monticello, uh, Monticello um, in Utah, on the Utah and Colorado side of the border, um, Cortez, that these are places that depend on that water and that farming. There's no water. There's <laughs> just no water. Yeah. And, and, and those places change, and how they change and how they adapt is a really challenging problem. Um, and that's, you know, and that's what I think about, yeah. is those communities. And, 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 and the other thing, and this is really, I think, an important thing, this is something we talked about a lot at this conference I was at in Salt Lake City, is that in the midst of all this, we have um, native communities that were victimized over more than a century of colonialism and never got the same kind of assistance to build water infrastructure to help them thrive that all the colonial communities, the Albuquerques of the world got. And at a time when we're increasingly realizes that we have these important questions of social justice and equity around that and, and the need to really provide water for communities that have never had it, there's less water. And so it becomes that much more difficult a problem. We, we have to not only cope with climate change, providing less water as a whole, but we have to realize, yeah, there's some communities that have a, a moral and legal entitlement to more water than they've got now, and we have to juggle those problems. That's an enormously difficult problem. It does sound like it's very complex. It's daunting. Definitely. It's daunting. But that's what we got. Like, we, we, we got one west, right? And, yeah. you know, we're living through climate change, and we don't seem to be very good at reducing greenhouse gas emissions, so we're going to have to figure out how to adapt to this new reality. It's a hard problem. I think Becky and Mary's answers highlight how everything seems to be connected. Just the size and timing of a river flow can really change the vegetation landscape, and animals living there. John's answers about water reservoirs also opened my eyes to different issues relating to groups and equity. Okay, now for the last question. I wanted to know what some possible consequences would be if more efforts were not made to help with water conservation or water sustainability. The answers varied here, so we'll start with Wes Noe's answer, then Molly Hentula, Brennan Davis, and John Fleck. I think the worst consequence is that we have no tree canopy and we just completely um, lose, I don't want to quote, kind of say like the battle, but um, 
you know, like this, the, the whole entire Endangered Species Act, like, if we continue down this route, then it's just going to cost more and more and more um, to try to maintain these systems that have been in place. Um, so, like, if we put, if we, um, put in the money like right now it'll cost us a lot less mm -hmm. than if we were to ignore it for 10 years and then think about it again oh, if we if we do it right now it'll cost us a lot less um, to just maintain the habitat and keep water in the river mm -hmm. than it would say in 10 years if we don't do anything and now there's no water and we literally just have to keep the Rio Grande Silvery Minnow and keep transporting it back and forth because we decided that keeping water in the river wasn't that important. We won't be able to sustain a large enough population. Mm -hmm. Our agriculture will decline immensely. Oh, oh no. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a lot of issues that coincide with the reservoirs and the dams. Mm -hmm. um, so general maintenance and repair if the dam gets too low. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not too sure on the details of it, but I do know that yeah. when the water gets too low, it does begin to damage the dam itself and oh. the pumps and the everything. Oh, okay. So um, it's going to cost more money to like do something different with that? Exactly. Wow. Yeah, it's going to be a whirlwind, not including, you know, the, the ecological impacts. I mean, traditionally the Rio Grande was this huge graded river. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's floodplain is massive. Yeah. And we didn't have the bosky that we have now. It oh, was completely different. Completely different. Yeah, it, it's incredible to see the difference. But I mean, it's just, it's already so man-made and channelized now that yeah. if we don't watch what we're doing, mm -hmm. it's going to really impact the entire state. I mean, multiple states. Wow. And Mexico. Oh, I see, because so. the river does flow down to Mexico, exactly. yeah. So yeah, I think what, what could happen um, is a reallocation of our existing water resources. Um, I think people are going to start to scrutinize agriculture um, and other forms of use, um, like our, our heavy you know, forms of use. and. I imagine at some point we're going to have to <laughs> revisit interstate compacts with Texas, um, international compacts uh, with with Mexico, and uh, really just kind of start from the ground up um, because the system as it currently stands um, I don't think is prepared yeah. for what's really going to happen. Yeah. Um, and in terms of the human impacts of what will happen, uh, you know, unfortunately as with most things I think uh, the, the marginalized populations in New Mexico are going to bear the brunt of that. Oh, yeah. um, and I would argue they already are. Um, and, and so probably I think we will end up seeing more um, congregation towards urban centers that have like these water utility authorities that have the bargaining power to secure water rights for people. Mm -hmm. um, and everybody that doesn't have the money to do that is going to be left out to dry. There's two things that can happen. There's two paths that I see before us. Um, I wrote a book uh, published I don't know, six years ago now called Water is for Fighting Over and Other Myths About Water in the West. Mm -hmm. And I argued that the sort of traditional narrative that water is a source of conflict 
is wrong that people more often learn to collaborate and cooperate mm -hmm. in their in their sharing of water. Oh, really? Um, and um, my optimistic path is that the message of that book holds that we will figure out how to share in a shrinking supply. Well, we will cooperate. That we will, in the cities, figure out how to use a lot less water. That farmers will figure out also how to use less waters. And that the cities who maybe need reliable supplies and need to get some water from those farm communities will do it collaboratively and cooperatively. We'll pay a farmer to farm less, mm -hmm. but still farm. Keep their farm in operation, but maybe fallow, it's called fallowing when you don't plant a field in a given year, maybe fallow a quarter of their land and that water then is available for their uses and they get paid for it. So they still have money flowing in and they keep the core of their community, their farming community intact. And we see agreements like this developing, they've been developing for a long time around the West, um, that show where the opportunities are. That's the positive path. That's the path I want us to be on. The negative path is we do start fighting over water. We go to court, yes. we have legal battles, mm -hmm. um, and someone will lose those legal battles. And in that loss, some community will collapse completely and lose all its water in order for everybody else to have water. Yeah. And that's, that's the scary path. And, and I, you know, I used to be really optimistic about my collaboration path, but climate change is hammering us so quickly that it's now clear to me that we got a choice about these two paths. Mm -hmm. And we have some risk of being on the bad outcome path now. And that's a big change for me in my thinking over the last year. Yeah, that's kind of the conclusion I came to. Like, you know, we'll just start fighting over water. You know? Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, what was interesting, you know, so the, the book that I did six years ago, Waters for Fighting Over, um, I originally thought that this conflict narrative, this conflict path, was the most likely path we're going to be on. Mm -hmm. And I started hanging out with the people who are actually making these decisions. I'm writing a book. I went to all their conferences. I went out in the field with them. I spent a bunch of time with them. And there was this wonderful moment early on in the work on the book that sort of changed my mind where um, I was in a hotel in Yuma, Arizona. And a whole bunch of water management people were in the community for an event. And they're all, most of them were staying at the same hotel. That was one of the tricks when I was writing the book, is like always figure out where people are staying and stay at the home, same hotel so you can bump into people in the bar and the, ho yeah, and yeah. the, and the restaurants and, and breakfast. Cool. Um, I, like I don't drink, but I still always hang out in the bars, like, because yeah. that's where the conversations are happening. And, and it was, and I saw one of the, one of the people who's, one of the, two of the people who are leaders among the environmental activist community, mm -hmm. who are trying to put water back in the river, and they were sitting at the bar drinking with the guy who was the most active head of one of the farm groups, right? And usually you would expect the environmentalists and the farmers to be at, in conflict. Yeah, but, they, but they were hanging out in a bar together talking, right? And, the, and, and I realized, wait, there's something going on here that I was missing when I thought about the conflict narrative. And so I started watching for and looking for the places where these collaborations happen. Um, and these groups of people still disagree, but they know how to be friends and have the hard conversations across a boundary of friendship rather than enemyship. Mm -hmm. Is that a word, enemyship? Probably, I don't know. It should yeah. be. It should be. We've just made up this word if it's not a word Most already. It, yeah. We're going to go with it, enemyship. Um, 
um, and, and I saw, once I was started looking for this, I saw this everywhere, these collaborative relationships. So when I was in Utah um, last week in Salt Lake City, things are really bad on the, on the river. The risk of conflict is higher than it's ever been in the 10 years I've been really actively working on Colorado River issues. And yet these people were still sharing meals, having hallway conversations, doing the kind of social goodwill building that's necessary to try to hold together these bonds of collaboration in the face of increasing strains. So it's possible, right? Yeah. I, you know, I, I come away both more optimistic and more pessimistic, and I'm trying to hold those two things in my mind at the same time. I understand what the risks are on the pessimistic path, and understand what the opportunities are on the optimistic path, and how do we steer it onto that optimistic path. Those are some interesting possibilities. Higher economic costs, people either working together or against each other over water, and marginalized people missing out the most in water allocation. It seems like a time-sensitive issue. I think we're about done talking about the challenging stuff. Let's review then end this episode. It seems like we are faced with a lot of hard-to-solve issues related to maintaining usable water. If we don't mitigate the issues, possible consequences may not be pretty. Well, now what? What are people going to do about it? What have people been doing about it? Is there hope for the future? These questions will be addressed in the next episode. I hope you check it out.